0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3 R, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy, your one-stop shop for all things medical and... Uh, particularly on a Sunday morning, and uh, have we got a show for you here on 3 Triple I'm Sigmund McZiff, and uh, we've reassembled the old team. As a matter of fact, I feel like George Clooney at Ocean's Eleven. I, I'm looking around the team here. It's a ripper. We've got the elegant, the erudite, the exquisite anabolics, and uh, we've got the ever-reliable and wonderful Kentus Maximus on the panel. And we've found, we've located... Uh, uh, we sent out the search party, the peripatetic SK. He's been away missing in action, and we've dragged him back. And uh, he's going to uh, review a film called Criminal, with a Kevin Costner film, which is out. So so it's good to have SK back. But, you know, if that is the the, the, the cake with the ice cream on top, well, the cherry is certainly here. He's been gone for a long time. Uh, he's been off on sabbatical. <clears throat> he's not back permanently, but he's back for a visit. The wonderful talk man is here in the studio with us, and he 's going to tell us all about what 's new in neurology it 'll be a brief segment, but uh, 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 but uh, we 're thrilled to have him back so uh, we 're going to have some catch up we 're going to have some music we 're going to digest everything that 's been happening in the world and uh, um, we 'll be back in a moment. Just listen to this. <laughs> Well, wow, tall man. Tall man. Oh, good to have it, you back. Yeah,
2: look, it's, uh, you know, part of me died when uh, I stopped coming at the start of the year. Mm. And been listening in intermittently, not a lot, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, have been listening in. And I've got to say, the show is certainly
1: better without me. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. Oh, I don't know about that at all. And, uh, and S.K., you've been... You, you sort of like you know you went you came out of the trenches and uh, went over the top and and uh, we thought you'd all you'd gone.
0: That, that's right, McZiff. I've I've been away, but my parole officer tells me I'm much better now. <laughs> so it's it's good. Be, it's great to have Toolman back as well. I mean, Tallman, uh, as you know, uh, left radio uh, this year to concentrate on his football coaching career. Tallman, how did the under tens go
2: this year? Uh, okay, so they played sixteen games. Uh, they won two and lost fourteen. But I have to say at the fourth quarter of every game, no matter what position they were in, those young men and women were playing like they were winners every game. It was the experience of a lifetime. What
0: about you? you were 2 and 14. You're still contracted for 2017. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- there is discussion apparently.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a great experience coaching those uh, under-12 Aries Inlet Eels. They were a sensational team. And looking good for next year, we've recruited heavily.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and anabolics. Hello.
3: Look, I, I was reminded this week when I was a little girl. I went to school and they had show and tell day, and I remember, about second week into kinder, bring along my great aunt's pet goat, and and uh, it was show and tell. I was, and this this week uh, when you send out a thing saying, what are you talking about this week? Doctor, anabolic. So I thought to myself, oh, "What am I going to bring?" And got on the got on the line. Got a, <laughs> <laughs> wrote an email, and I'm taking full credit for getting Your tall man goat. back. my oh, <laughs> pet goat <laughs> i been reduced to a pet goat <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I dug him out of retirement, brought him back, and I'm so happy to see you. It's lovely to have you back. So you're my show and tell this week.
1: <laughs> uh, it's, it's good stuff. <laughs> And, uh, so look, it's, it's been a big week. Um, well, this week's been a sort of week where the dust has been settling a wee bit, but, uh, we're going to talk, we've got a lot to talk about today, but I did want to, um, just find out how everyone is feeling now in this new, uh, um, Trump world. Uh, I've, uh, I think a lot of people do have PTSD, post-Trump stress disorder and, uh, people struggling to come to terms with things. I mean, it's been interesting sitting around and just uh, chewing the fat with people about how they coped with that particular Wednesday here, um, a lot of people were shocked and distressed and, uh, and uh, exhausted going through the process of the election. I mean, and, you know, and uh, we're, we're around the other side of the world. And then the following day, there was sort of a, a reckoning, and now it's uh, coming to terms with, uh, with uh, a new world. I've been listening to many, many different uh, things and reading uh, whatever I can. Uh, there's almost too much. We've got this overabundance of communication nowadays. <clears throat> but one of the things that I do like listening to is uh, a podcast, This American Life, from Chicago Public Radio with uh, Ira Glass. And... Uh, um, In the most recent podcast, what they had was they interviewed uh, a number of different people, um, just just average Americans all across the country, some pro-Trump, some anti, uh, and there were two particular vignettes which stuck with me, and uh, I wanted to just briefly mention those and uh, and see what sort of reactions there were the first was this uh, delightful um woman from Salt Lake City in Utah a mormon woman who uh, like most in Salt Lake City are uh, very pro republican and uh, but she however was Aghast at some of the misogyny uh, expressed by Trump, uh, particularly the the detail which emerged in the latter parts of the campaign, so much so that she uh, switched allegiances entirely. Not from being a Republican, still a Republican, but uh, but uh, supporting Hillary and uh, at great personal cost because uh she's uh, relationships with within her family have become fractured as a result and uh, she nonetheless supported Hillary very strongly now uh, she was a a woman who had always been quite political in her uh, in her desires, despite the fact that she had a mother who told her, "No, no, 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 this is not the sort of area for for a woman to go into," but she's got a young daughter, and uh, she'd encouraged her daughter that uh, anything was possible for a woman in America, and uh, her daughter was uh, very, very pro Hillary and apparently what they did at the school where the daughter uh, attends is that they had a mock election and the daughter was the only one who voted for Hillary Clinton and uh, couldn't go to school the day after the election for for uh fear the young girl feeling absolutely devastated and now feeling as though that which was which which seemed possible for her is no longer possible that a woman could uh, reach the heights of uh, of, uh, of office. So that was the that's the first vignette. And the second vignette, which is actually interesting and in some respects uplifting, two American reservists, military reservists, uh, army reserves, uh, one pro Trump, one pro Clinton, um, best friends, but totally. Um, uh, occupy totally opposite poles of the political spectrum, disagree on everything political, social and cultural, and yet respectful of each other and uh, that's been that uh, and 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 you hear the two of them discussing their uh, their views and why they supported each candidate and uh, and yet they were able to do so uh, with uh, with some respect and uh, um and in fact listen to what the other side had to say and 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 that filled me with some sense of hope um but I mean, it's interesting. I don't know have have any of you encountered people who have come out as as pro-Trump or as pleased about the the result.
0: Well, I, th- I think it's difficult to encounter people who who will admit to coming out and being pro-Trump, and that was one of the surprises with the uh, U.S. election, of course, wasn't it? Makes if uh, he wasn't expected to win because the polls didn't show that he had a lead, but uh, there's a lot of silent Trump supporters out there, and we've seen, uh, you know, comments from our own sort of right-wing conservative, typically uh, Christian politicians. You know, some of those are quite happy to see him uh, attain the presidency, but uh, the mainstream—I've not met anybody who thinks uh, Trump's a good thing, other than one of my patients who uh, had a dementing illness, so perhaps he could be forgiven. Mm. <laughs> I,
1: think,
3: I think there's a lot of reasons uh, about... Uh, for, you know, first, Vignette, talking about the young woman who was uh, standing as Hillary Clinton. I think there's a lot of talk about a female being in that position in a perfect world, of course, fifty percent of people in those positions would be of, of either of either gender um, it 's it's not just to me about a female being positioned she was a highly qualified person much more qualified and it 's struck a lot of people as, a, as a very uh, you know, what 's emblematic of the difficulties of qualified women do have against uh, lesser qualified men sometimes when there 's a lot of uh, show and bombast around the, around those men. Uh, and, but the other reason I think that it has been devastating for, particularly for women, and, um, I'm sure for, uh, African Americans, uh, for, for, Jewish people in America, all those, you know, all of the, for the whom the, having the right wing in the right house, in the White House is a terrifying thought. But the, the bigger reason is because what he plans to do to things like Planned Parenthood and Roe v. Wade, that's where the, that's the point, that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of, um, uh, women 's health reproductive rights in America and hopefully not here but it could it could filter over here it always is already showing some signs of getting some uh, um, traction amongst the pol- political speak but um, the Supreme Court will fall to uh, very right wing people and roe v wade is under threat and Planned Parenthood will be defunded so mil- millions of um, uh, you, you best just explain roe v wade. Well, that's the abortion law uh, uh, that makes it uh, not illegal to have an abortion in America. Um, and that was uh, a, a case that was in, I think, the 70s in America and, and it was a, for the first time it, it allowed people to access legal abortions in America. And that is, that has been a targeted uh, law for the last thirty years by people, those people on the right and people who have um, very strong views about abortion, and it will go, it, it will be, it will be under threat. Uh, at the very least, uh, Trump has said he will make it a matter of states' rights, so that in some states. Uh, women will not be able to access an abort- a safe abortion in their own state and may have to travel somewhere else to do this so and with planned parenthood also being defined, you won 't be able to get contraception they can you can 't get contraception in America like you can get here under prescription for cheap you 've got to pay for it if you 're a poor person just trying to make ends meet so uh, get ready for lots of um, uh, babies and lots of illegal abortions and that's that's the reason to be really sad for women in america i think
0: yet there have been some positives to come out of the trump presidency i mean consumer spending is up already true it's largely been on secondhand shipping containers and excavating equipment but the positive
3: (laughs) signs are there
0: anabolics how can you deny this but
3: but
2: now look we're, we're surrounded by psychiatrists here but what about the psychology of trump Because that's what fascinates me. Uh, His psychology uh, or psychopathology or, uh, you know, he's just, he's a businessman. He's a, he's a, and he's an operator, Uh, but in the business environment and he clearly, you know, he's directive, you know, there's lots of talk that he's surrounding himself with people with um, the understanding of the operations of government and how to get things done in government. But... I mean, how do you think, uh, you know, his psychology and what what risk is there to the greater world? That's what really, that's the nubbin of this. We have to accept that of those people that were considered enough to vote, that wanted to vote... They cast their vote and democratically have elected this man. Mm-hmm. So he has a resonance with a part of American mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. If, you know, 60% of the population vote and they elect... 50, the, only 50. 50, mm-hmm. then th- th- that's what... You, if you're not willing to vote mm-hmm. um, or, you, you know, there's some nuances of that. But in terms of this, I mean, what, what, are the, what are the risks of this type of persona? Do we really know what sort of personality, what sort of psychology he has?
1: Well, there's been a great deal which i think was uh, was revealed i mean his um his ruthlessness uh, on the campaign trail his willingness to flip-flop when it in fact suited him his embrace of the lie as opposed to the truth i mean the, the truth is is now rendered essentially meaningless because he was he's been able to get away with saying whatever he wants to say his attack on uh, on women his attack on various minority groups um ethnic groups his uh his appalling Behavior towards uh, a disabled reporter—that um, is—that that speaks volumes to me about the character of uh, of the man, and that to me is a source of of great concern. You know, people will say, "Well, he may well grow into the role." The man is seventy-one years old. If you are not who you are going to become at seventy-one, then. Uh, you know, you're, you're never going to, I mean, things don't change. And the, the, the question was more to
0: psychopathology than character. I guess you can make judgments on character, but in terms of psychopathology, we've talked about psychopathology of politicians mm. on this show before, and you know, to me, Trump is the uh, the archetype of unbridled narcissism. You know, all of his statements throughout the campaign, campaign related to only him being able to do this and people in such and such a constituency love him, everybody loves him. Uh, any criticism was taken with a Twitter tirade and a demeaning outburst, you know, to me is the, the epitome of narcissism, which is a dangerous thing.
2: Well, well it certainly is, and, I mean, you, that's why um, you had... Uh, Obama, I suppose, coming out and saying look, you know, everybody just settle down because there's more to the government of the United States than the Commander-in-Chief and there are lots of checks and balances and you can't just run holus bolus through this system that, you know, we have in place levels of... Um of control uh, and counterbalance that—that that means that you know a, a dud president actually, you know, that's what he was effectively saying can't just you know at a whim. But certainly, that's the concern. That's the primal fear that everybody's experiencing right now is there's the we don't know. It's an unknown, and when people don't know something, they push back from it and they get worried and concerned, and that's. That's exactly what's happening. If you look through the arc of history, we've had lots of leaders like this. I mean, you look at Russia and Yeltsin. I mean, you know, that man was not dissimilar. I mean, he was a loose cannon. Um, he, he wreaked havoc on Russia, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, did it, did it result in, I mean, most people are saying, well, you know, we don't want war. We don't want an escalation of war. Uh, we don't want uh, atomic activity. On the planet. So, you know, that, that, and then there's the economic risks of, you know, being self interested to the exclusion and the damage of other nations, and that goes to employment, and that's where everybody's self interest is actually affected.
3: Can you see uh, his uh, nature and behaviour through the lens of what's being described as a toxic masculinity, his competitiveness, which is beyond the the normal range of competitiveness to that anybody is a winner or a loser, there is no grey zone, I'm not interested in your needs, I'm interested in winning, his business record, you say he's a businessman, his business record, he's left a trail of people behind him who he he has dudded for money Mm. and who he describes as losers because they didn't pay attention to how he was going to take their money, I mean this is a this is a kind of a competitive toxic i 'm going to win i'm uh, women are to be uh, treated like shit i 'm using his words that 's he 's on tapers saying treated like shit this is a kind of a putin is very similar the guy from Breitbart who 's now uh, advising him has a similar view if you want to get on Breitbart and read what people say about women on Breitbart, um, keep your daughters away from reading it because it 'll demoralize them for mm. they they talk about undermining the women's movement quite specifically they talk about getting women back out of the workplace into the house into the home where they belong this is this is not um, non this is not something that you can't not worry about this is and now the person who who's uh, the ceo of Breitbart is now advising this dog who's mm-hmm. caught the car he doesn't uh, trump is the dog who caught the car he hasn't got a clue how to do anything in public service and he's going to scarily he's going to look around for other people to tell him what to do and he's choosing very frightening people to do that. Yeah.
1: Remember that name, Steve Bannon. A dangerous name, a dangerous man. There is a Chinese curse McZiff that says, uh, may you live in interesting times. And I think it's uh, certainly an interesting time at the moment. Well, we certainly do. And uh, and next cab off the rank could well be France, and uh, mm. and then uh, Germany with Angela Merkel. So,
2: on that cheering... But, but you're noise. not suggesting that Pauline is going to run Australia, are you? Well, well
1: interestingly, interestingly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. in 1920. I think it was in 1929 the Nazi party in Germany uh, garnered 2.8% of the popular vote and uh, three or four years later they uh, had 37% of the vote Mm. so um, whilst one uh, and, and and Hitler. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to be uh, dog whistling here, but uh, but Hitler uh, was dismissed as a buffoon with a strange uh, hairstyle, and uh, thought and the elite, the German elite, uh, uh, thought that they were going to be able to harness. Uh, his popularity for uh, for their own benefits and, and that to me is uh, is what is one well, the so, so the broader
2: question here is
1: what is it about
2: that type of person when they're campaigning like this that resonates with a significant Proportion of the population. What is it about the population?
3: They, they were depressed after the the depression in 1929, and they were depressed after the um, GFC in America. And they, and he have got someone come out and say, it's not your fault. You're a winner. You're a winner. And I'm going to be your voice, and you're going to win from now on. It's not. It's not your fault. It's it's music uh, to people's ears saying, when they're right for it. We're, we're, yeah.
1: Okay.
2: Mm. I was going to be con- controversial there.
1: Triple R. Now, Tall Man. Tom, another great lyricist. Um, tell us. I was, you mean, just, you'd, you'd be, you, I was just. I was just think oh, I'm going to have to change my segment instantly because uh, otherwise we're going to end up in
2: the pits. Because uh, I was going to talk about um, sort of the activity around motor neurone disease, <laughs> and uh, but but I will because it's been um, it's been incredibly positive uh, oh. in the last 12 months, and there've been a number of coincident things that have been occurring. Uh, and firstly the first thing to to discuss is that you know we 're dealing with a disease that 's you know three per one hundred thousand there are roughly two hundred people in Victoria at any time with this disorder um, and it as a consequence of that the 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 ability to fund research and to fund drug trials or innovative trials has been worldwide it 's a problem and it 's literally through somewhat you know, there's not enough funding to get researchers interested to feel that they can actively work in that area Um it, it, it. And we've had that problem since early 2000. There was a lot of activity in early 2000 with a number of pharma companies um, putting up drugs for trials and I think the last 15 trials in MND have all failed um, and failed miserably the last one with Biogen Idec in 2008, uh, $60 million trial, no positive results. So it became a sort of a, a desert mm. uh, and funding dried up. To wit, one has to acknowledge... The incredible efforts of uh, Dr. Ian Davis and Neil Danaher from the Cure Foundation, which they established um, some, you know, two or three years ago, and the amount of uh, money that they've been able to, and awareness that's the first thing that they've done. Uh, The money aside is that they've created awareness of this disease um, and a better understanding of what this disease is. But with that has been the incredible support, uh, uh, financial support of the public of Australia, really, and certainly Victoria, uh, and also a couple of philanthropic uh, bequests from the uh, Laidlaw family who... um, (laughs) It's a fascinating story of how funding and bequests come about, and it's probably worth—I'm sure, Mr. Laidler won't mind me telling it—but um, his wife uh, was a long-term patient of Calvary Healthcare under Dr. Susan Mathers, and uh, and had primary lateral sclerosis, and uh, and we've been looking after her for sort of fifteen, twenty years, and. Uh, and he then became aware of what Neil Danaher was doing and he, he, he to his amazement said, well, I, I didn't realise you needed money for research. And uh, to which uh, Dr Mather said, yeah, no, look, it's really, you know, we really do. And he said, well, look, um, I wouldn't mind uh, donating a, a couple of million if, if that's okay with you. <laughs> <laughs> to which he's gone ahead and done exactly that. And uh, sort of serendipitously, uh, but that sort of money and the amounts of money that have been raised have been matched by the federal government. So there's this surge of funding now that is going down the pipeline to researchers and they competitively assessed grants um, throughout Australia through the Motor Neuron Disease Research Institute of Australia and CURE themselves, the CURE Foundation themselves, are directly funding uh, various drug trials. So transitional medicine. So the the important thing here is that it's not just the basic science, the dry science that's now still occurring, and I'll come back to, you know, pathophysiology, but it's also very early trials um, for this disease. Now, these are phase one and two trials, so they're very low numbers of patients in drugs, and it's not about whether the drug is doing anything for the disease. It's about whether patients can actually tolerate the drugs. So there are two trials currently uh, have been initiated in Australia, and you know there's no more than you know, 40 or so patients being enrolled in these trials, and it's not to tell whether or not it has a benefit. It's to make sure that there's no adverse reaction to the tested drug. One's uh, an HIV cocktail drug um, that's being used and the other is a, 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 co- a, a drug that affects copper metabolism. So, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's a new thing for Australia to be involved in early phase trials. And, in fact, those trials are not being run anywhere else in the world. So um, it's, it's, it's a real burn. And there's more, you know, there's now... The initiation of more translational research, getting drugs into trials to tell or determine whether or not they're going to, or possibly could be effective in treating this disorder, um, and it's all it's all been a, a possible because of the funding that that started to flow, um, and. You know, we're still dealing with the tip of the iceberg in this disease. There's, you know, the effective therapies. There are effective therapies that temporise the disease and there's lots of incredibly good work that that goes on within the multidisciplinary clinics that have been championed by Dr. Susan Mathers from Calvary Healthcare Bethlehem who really set up the model of how to look after patients with this disorder um, uh, with a comprehensive team of allied health, neuropsychiatry, neuropsychology, um the whole gambit of of services to keep people supported and well. Not to mention the Herculean efforts of the Motor Neuron Disease Association of Victoria, an organisation that I've had contact with since the mid nineties, who have done you know behind the scenes enormous work in in. Understanding this disease and understanding that patients need to get therapies very quickly and they cut through the bureaucracy and cut through red tape to make sure that, uh, you know, patients are uh, superannuations released, all sorts of things that are really vital to support families, not to mention that they haven't forgotten regional Australians and regional Victorians and they have case managers that literally travel out into the, the back blocks of Victoria where patients are at the time that they've got the disease and work with the families and the local community and the local health resources to make sure that these patients are getting effective care. Um, Tom
1: and the the role of a high profile sufferer of a particular condition so we we have seen um with with breast cancer for example um Olivia. Uh, and yeah olivier and uh, and uh, people who've got the positive for the bracket gene um yeah. Yeah. uh and uh, and now and neil Danaher, an extraordinarily popular Character, much loved, um, you know, and it's tragic, but uh, but who's who's adopted this wonderfully positive, um, this resilience in the face of uh, of what's a devastating condition? How how important is it, do you think?
2: I oh, look, in 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 rare diseases, it's critical, uh, and to be completely I'll, I'll exposed, my feeling about this. To be completely mercenary about this, it's not until something like that happens that you get the public attention and awareness and get the ear of government because there's no reason for government to fund this type of research. Right. It, it's just, you know, they're going to they're get into cancer and they're going to get into cardiovascular disease because that affects the majority. So they work off, you know, the, the benefit of good for the most. So without somebody uh, like Ian Davis... Uh, And uh, Neil Danaher, we we would still be, um, you know, a very sort of unknown disorder, um, uh, and getting very little traction in terms of research. Waiting really for serendipitous discovery. How how does it affect people? How how do people present with this? So it's a hundred percent fatal disease. Um, patients have pure motor weakness uh, there's a subvariant that causes uh, can cause dementia, dementia or frontotemporal dementia um, it runs in families about 5% is genetically linked and that's autosomal dominant which means that any offspring have a 50% chance of getting that disease of getting the disease but 90% percent of cases are sporadic they just occur spontaneously and like I say about 200 people in Victoria about two per 100,000 of population and it affects the motor system only and that's the that's the intriguing part of this disease is why only the motor system both the motor nerves from the brain to the spinal cord and then from the spinal cord out to the muscles um and it causes wasting and weakness it causes difficulty speaking difficulty swallowing and respiratory failure and all of those things um can be managed we can make people comfortable we can we can treat their symptoms we can temporize their symptoms but we just are unable to stop the progression of the disease to any significant extent.
3: So with things like MS, we know that that the little cells that wrap around the nerves are Mm. are damaged. What's the actual pathology? When Mm. when people die and you look at what's actually happening to the... um, So uh,
2: what happens is you, you see within the neuron itself a collection of precipitated proteins. So these proteins that are normally, if you think of um, a glass of uh, salted water, they're in solution. You can't see them. But at some point, the crystals can reform again and form a sludge on the bottom of the cup. Well, the same thing happens in the cell, except the sludge is these precipitated proteins. And it's not clear whether that is because they're not being taken to the area to be broken down in the cell or there's some other metabolic problem in the cell that means that they can't be kept in their conformation that keeps them uh, healthy. Uh, So they come out of solution and they precipitate. And that is sort of the marker that these cells are diseased. And it's only in the motor nerves. Mm. The other other support tissue in the brain is all normal. Um, So it's Except in the, the uh, where you get dementia, is where you can get the same thing happening in the frontotemporal region of the brain.
0: And I guess the crossover with uh, frontotemporal dementia is that pathology of frontotemporal dementia again relates to misfolded
2: proteins. That's right. So there's a common so, thread there. And there's even a thought that this may be what's called a prion disease. Um, there's a prion disease therapy where it's you know you you know but it's not contagious. <laughs> we know that, but it it has similarities to these diseases which you can infect somebody else with. The Creutzfeldt-Jakob is the quintessential prion disease, um, but it, uh, I don't want to you know that's that's a longer bow. It, it's not exactly the same, and it certainly it behaves in some cases much more differently. But it, it's in that area and. Uh, of of intracellular metabolism, and it's intriguing. The intriguing part of it is when you think of all the motor things you do, and this disease affects, you know, your tongue, your face, uh, your swallowing muscles, your arms and your legs, but it doesn't affect your muscles that control the eyes, the motor nerves to the eyes. Really? And, yeah. you know, they remain normal throughout the entire arc of this disease. So there's all sorts of – and also there's gender uh, disparity. Generally, it's a male-dominated disease, about 1.5 to 1, male to female, except in some variants of the disease – if it starts in your face, that's equal, male and female, equally affected. And if it starts in your arms and you get what's called a flail arm variety, that's 10 to 1, male to female. Hmm. So there's, there's, there's these other influences and none of them, nobody's ever brought together a unifying theory hmm. of exactly what's um, the triggers. So, you know, glibly we say it's a genetic background within, with some other trigger. That you're exposed to during life, an infection, toxin. So, notwithstanding that, it's a um, it's been it's been heartening the amount of work that's gone into uh, MND in the last two to three years. I hope it doesn't fatigue. Mm. I hope we don't get societal fatigue of, oh, it's just motor neurone disease, because this disease, you know, while they've raised probably upward of $30 million. Is that the Ice Bucket
3: Challenge or is that another
2: that's, one? That's or what started starter, it. It yeah. started. It started with the Ice Bucket Challenge. But, you know, you know, we need hundreds of millions of dollars to really get uh, this disease properly. And if it was like HIV, that's exactly what happened. That's the amount of quantum <clears> money <throat> we need. But I, I just have to acknowledge the, the stupendous efforts of CURE, mm. who really... Mm. Given us, uh, put us in
1: the vanguard. So watch this space. That's uh, that's good to hear, Tom. And uh, we're going to have a brief break, um, and uh, we'll come back with uh, S. Key.
3: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three RR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Uh, S.K. is going to tell us about uh, a movie that's been out. I actually haven't heard of this, uh, a Kevin Costner film called Criminal.
0: Yes, it's, it's a current release, mix. if uh, not many people have seen it, apparently, and once you see it, it becomes apparent why that is the case. But it's a, a sort of mindless action thriller that I like to curl cool up with sometimes on a Saturday night, uh, but with a sci-fi twist to it. Uh, it's got a good cast, you know, Ryan Reynolds and Kevin Costner and uh, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, hmm. Terrific cast, but they're, they're underutilised. The basic plot has uh, Ryan Reynolds as a CIA agent who is the holder of some secret knowledge about a terrorist plot that could you know, destroy the world or some shit like that. You know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> but Ryan Reynolds as the holder of this secret knowledge, uh, gets killed before he can report to his masters and uh, who who invoke uh, a desperate measure to try and recover the knowledge from his dead brain. They uh, are aware of a neurosurgeon played by Tommy Lee Jones who has been doing an experimental technique with rats that allows uh, them to learn memories from dead rats. He so sort of hooks them up and memories are transferred. And uh,
2: Sort of like the Pensieve in Harry Potter. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good Harry Potter
0: analogy. So it's a very highly experimental technique. It's only been trialled on animals at this stage. So enter the eponymous criminal in the form of Kevin Costner, who's seen as an expendable test subject, who's of no value to anybody. And, you know, he's spent half of his adult life in prison. So he's recruited. And uh, Kevin Costner plays a character called Jericho Stewart, uh, who we first meet in prison. And the prison governor gives us a bit of exposition about how he's landed there. Uh, We learnt that uh, he suffered a frontal lobe injury as a result of a, a childhood car accident whereby his abusive father threw him out of the car uh, and he suffered a catastrophic frontal lobe injury which stopped his frontal lobes from developing, uh, leaving that part of his brain, quote unquote, a hotbed of neural stem cells ripe for stimulation. <laughs> How's the science holding up so far? Yeah, no, they've, yeah. they've just left the building,
2: unfortunately. <laughs> completely left the building.
3: However, the plot just did take a twist. Yeah,
0: and this, this condition is described in the film as being incredibly rare, like one in 10 million, where there's frontal lobe disorders all over the place, really. Plenty of people with frontal lobe problems but we learn that as a result of his injuries uh, Jericho Stewart has been left with no impulse control no sense of proportion in terms of how he reacts to events he's unable to calculate the potential negative consequences of his actions and uh, he's described as having a total lack of empathy with other people so Donald Trump Donald Trump (laughs) in many ways he could be described as a psychopath so this criminal is identified in a U.S. prison He's uh, inexplicably rendered with a, a transport plane over to the UK where Ryan Reynolds' body is. You would have thought it might have been easier to transport him to uh, to America instead. But no, uh, Kevin Costner's rendered to, uh, to the UK where he undergoes involuntary uh, neurosurgery to transfer the memories from Ryan Reynolds to him. So... Stepping back and taking a look at the basic science here, uh, the frontal lobe is involved in impulse control, uh, the evaluation of consequences and risk assessment, and it's also the organ of empathy. So it's that part of the brain which allows us to imagine how another person might feel in a given situation. It's not involved in memory, however, with the slight exception of working memory, which is a, a technical aspect I won't go into. But if you're trying to transfer memories from one person to another, you're not looking for somebody who's got an underactive frontal lobe in order to do that because memories uh, uh, reside within the temporal lobe, if you like, so it's, it's a bit of a scientific uh, nonsense. Anyway, the process of uh, Kevin did, Costas...
2: Did you write a letter of complaint? Not yet. <laughs> okay, because yes, uh, I the, uh, Uh, the
0: screenwriter. Absolutely. advocating for people with frontal lobe disorders. It's an unrealistic (laughs) (laughs) portrayal. The process, uh, it had to work for the sake of the film. It it works, apparently, and it begins to regain some of Ryan Reynolds' memories. But in the very early stages, it's not apparent to the CIA who doesn't think it's worked, and they want to dispose of their evidence, and they order a couple of agents to take Kevin Costner away and dispose of him quietly. But then... uh, As he's being taken away to be killed, this is despite his frontal lobe problems, which we tell him from planning and organising and estimating consequences and risks or so forth, he uses very high-level frontal lobe abilities to escape. (laughs) He's trapped in the back of a car, he's got sort of cable ties on his wrists, and he's behind a cage that separates him from the the driver and the passenger. And, uh, you know, he thinks very laterally to get out of this situation. He uses his teeth to chew a bit of metal trim off the side of the car. He fashions a hook from that, which he then feeds through the cage and sort of snags the driver's carotid, which causes a car crash, collides with another vehicle. He then sort of drags the body of the other driver out of the vehicle and puts it in the passenger seat in the back where he was, sets fire to the car. So, you know, very high level frontal lobe skills in terms of planning and organisation to orchestrate, orchestrate and carry through his escape, which we just wouldn't expect anybody with a frontal lobe ability to be able to do. Do. He then, having uh, got some of Ryan Reynolds' memories, you know, uh, bypasses a security system to get access to uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds' house, and you know, we see him decoying a security camera and things, again, very high-level frontal lobe planning and organisation things, uh, which he simply couldn't do, and yet... Now, subsequent to these events we see evidence that he's still suffering from frontal lobe disorder he enters a kebab shop and immediately barges to the straight of the line and orders to the front of the line and orders something he grabs another customer's kebab and starts eating it he then goes outside and sort of unprovokedly attacks three people who have a van that he needs in order to drive away he's then driving uh, quite quite easily on the wrong side <laughs> of the road uh, having come from America uh, through London city traffic in a manual transmission is a guy who spent half his adult life in prison, we're told. So it really doesn't take into account the theoretical impairments that, uh, that he's still shown to have to enable him to participate in this mindless violence. Later on in the film, uh, because he's got some pain from his neurosurgery, he goes into a chemist and we see him troubled by the simple act of removing a childproof cap from the box of medicine. So, you know, on one level he's able to solve problems at a very high strategic level and, uh, and do all these amazing things. On the other other hand he can't open a bottle of medicine so criminal in many ways it's got similarities to a number of other films over the years that have uh Portrayed frontal lobe disorders in quite a misleading way. You mentioned uh, frontotemporal dementia before Tallman. There's a film I think I talked about a year or so ago called Dying of the Light, which had Nicholas Cage in it, who again was a CIA agent who uh, had developed frontotemporal dementia, and he's shown in doing similar planning and strategic events to, to solve his dilemmas. Uh, perhaps the, the biggest culprit, from my perspective, is the uh, the series of movies uh, in the Saw franchise where the criminal mastermind who was orchestrating all of these terribly complex interweaving plots to force people to do weird things to themselves a very highly developed sense of knowledge of psychology and consequences. We're told in the Saw films that, uh, that this guy has a frontal lobe tumour. So, you know, you'd expect him to have essentially no frontal lobe function. Though maybe they're running the argument that occasionally in rare cases of neurological disorders you can get islands of super ability standing out.
2: Uh, I don't know whether you have a view on that thought, Ah, uh, Well, uh, you, there are, if you look at savants, I mean, they often uh, are globally... Uh, affected, but there is one part of their brain that works at an extraordinary level. Mm. Like, you know, I mean, so it is possible.
0: And the, the frontal lobes, by far and away, are the most interesting part of the brain as far as I'm concerned. I mean, uh, we talk about archetypes in medicine, and the archetypal frontal lobe patient was a guy called Phineas Gage. who was living in uh, America in the 1860s. And he was a, a foreman on a, a work gang laying down railroad tracks and his job was to sort of blow away rocks to uh, enable the tracks to be laid and he'd drill a hole in a rock, he'd sort of tap an explosive charge down into the base of the mm. rock with a, a three foot long piece of metal called mm. a tamping iron, it mm. uh, weighs about 10 kilos and he was sort of tamping his, his explosive charge one day when it <coughs> ignited and sort of shot this spiked piece of metal underneath his left cheekbone, behind his left eye and out the front of his forehead, sort of giving him an orbitofrontal lobe injury. And uh, amazingly, this guy survived in the pre-antibiotic and pre-neurosurgical era. The doctor's tent to which he was originally taken was 20 minutes away. He was conscious for most of the journey there. He was able to talk to the doctor about what had happened to him. Mm. The doctor didn't believe him until at one point during the consultation, Gage coughed and a piece of his brain fell out on the floor. Mm. So it was Mm. undeniable frontal lobe injury. But within 12 weeks, he was literally and figuratively back on the horse. Apparently, he'd regained full motor function. Yep. His speech was intact, he was able to, to behave and, and do things. But uh, his personality had completely changed. And he was unique in that he'd suffered a catastrophic injury where it was undeniable where the location of the damage had occurred. So scientists were able to study for the first time the effects of a devastating frontal lobe insult on somebody who survived to tell the tale.
2: But he, he actually inspired subsequent generations of his family to go into the area of neuroscience research. And in fact... In the mid '90s, I met his one of his relatives who was head of neuroscience in uh, San Diego, La Jolla,
3: no. USD. Really?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh. And his name was Rusty Gage. Oh
3: no, <laughs> oh, absolutely.
2: Really? Yeah. Sense of irony there. It, it is. It's a yeah. paradox. But it, you know, and he was a, he was doing a lot of work on neurotrophic growth factors at the time, and uh, was a was a world authority. Cage himself was a
0: fascinating guy after his injury. Uh, he displayed all of the signs of a frontal lobe injury, became impulsive, profane, couldn't hold down a job. If you actually Google him, there's images of him on the net that show him posing with his tamping iron as a traveling exhibit in yeah. one of P.T. <laughs> Barnum's yeah. uh, circus shows. Yeah. So, fascinating case.
1: Well, uh, S.K., uh, as usual, uh, back on track and uh, back in form. And uh, look, it's been a wonderful show. Um, we have. Uh, uh, we've covered a great deal of territory here. We've talked about Trump, and we've had uh, we've had not just Sk back, but we've had Tallman back to grace our shores, and uh, and what a thrill it's been. So, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week on Radio Therapy.